Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. Today, as we continue through the life of Moses, we have shifted to the Ten Commandments. And so I am going to read to you the first and second commandments starting with Genesis, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not make for yourself a man-made carved work representing some god. In other words, you shall not worship something you can make with your own hands. You shall not allow things you create to be treated as the creator. Things you make out of wood and stone and gold and metal must not control your life. They are a waste of time at most, as God said in Elijah, to Elijah, and they warp and destroy your life at worst. You see, we become like our false gods. If you worship a cruel god, guess what you will become? If you worship a God who loves violence, guess what you will do? If you worship a false God that merely exists to give fertility to your animals and crops and only material gain, guess what it does to your soul if that's all you live for? You will starve your soul to death while your body gorges itself. Idols put you inevitably in bondage. They chain you to themselves. They exhaust you. They destroy what really matters in life. I remember talking to a person in this church years ago. And they told me about a couple who, in their 30s, who were good friends with them. And the person in this church said that uh, they found a home they fell in love with. It was a beautiful structure with exquisite landscaping. They fell in love with it as soon as they saw it. They purchased furniture for the house that was equally beautiful. It was their dream house. It was the epitome of the American dream come true. There's just one small problem with this haven of beauty and rest in the, that existed in their lives. It gave them no rest at all. 
and they were too busy to enjoy its beauty. The mortgage payments were more than they could afford. They were huge. So both of them had to work, and the husband often working overtime, long hours into the night. By the time both of them got home, they were so tired, they had little energy for each other, and they started growing apart. Also, they were on the verge of economic ruin because of the large mortgage and the taxes on the house. And as any marriage counselor can tell you, financial stress often leads to marital conflict. In fact, the number one reason for divorce in America today is financial stress. It is relentless pressure. It causes all kinds of fights. I have seen couples fight over hamburgers. And they didn't get to catch up with each other or on their rest on the weekends. What did I say? I missed something. Oh. Oh, my Lord. Oh, that one didn't cut the mustard. Anyway, we will. Uh, I didn't hear that either. It's probably better I didn't. Anyway. Even on the weekends, they found themselves maintenancing and cleaning their dream house and working to keep the yard beautiful. And because they had little time for each other and because of the financial stress they were dealing with, this couple's marriage disintegrated. That which initially they controlled on their own came to control them. A house which was meant to be a means to a happier home and a happier life became the destroyer of their happy life. That's what happens when the means becomes the end. Their house functioned as their God. They never, the, it functioned as the controller of their life. They never even saw it coming. They thought, this is what will make us happy. This is what destroyed their life. False gods destroy your life. Please hear this word of caution. The things that control us almost always start as things we controlled. They often started as good things. One of the great dangers, especially living in this Western affluent civilization we live in, is often the gift can become the God. And there's a difference. You see, gift is what we hold loosely. Gift is what we praise God for and our show gratitude for. Gift keeps us focused on the face of Jesus Christ. But it's so easy to shift from looking at Jesus Christ to just looking at the gift, focusing on the gift, building your life around the gift. It gets bad when gifts turn into gods. And there's so many good things that can. And of course there's plenty of bad things too. Besides that, things can never make a home. Things can never make a life. Only love and commitment and communication and God can make a home. You can be economically disadvantaged and have a wonderful home. You can live anywhere in the world and have a wonderful home. In a crossword puzzle, it was asked, what makes a home? And the required answer was, in this crossword puzzle, furniture. That is precisely what does not make a home. Not wood or stone or brick nor things made with hands make a home or make a life. Now, please don't get me wrong. Things have their place. We all need a certain amount of money and shelter and clothes. We all need these things. 
But when the tail starts wagging the dog, something's wrong. We are supposed to own our things. Our things are not supposed to own us. Let me give you an alternative to this couple that I just described who had their home destroyed by their house. Craig Groschel and his wife Amy always enjoyed keeping a nice house, especially for company. He's a pastor. And years ago, he said, if you called and told us you were coming to visit our house, our routine would have looked something like this. Maybe you can relate. I'd run and tell Amy that you were coming. She'd ask when. I'd tell her in an hour. She'd panic. We'd spend the next 59 minutes and 30 seconds running around throwing stuff into a closet, that one big closet, you know, right there in the middle of the house, and then we would tell the kids, under no circumstances, open that closet door. And then we'd light some candles to get rid of the stink. And he said, my job included putting on a worship tape to set the spiritual mood. If you don't know what a tape is, ask someone over 50. And then he said, at the very end, we'd freshen up and wait for the final 30 seconds to put on our home and happy family perfect show. And he said, do you know why we did this? Because our identity was wrapped up in something besides Jesus Christ. You could say we worshiped our image. Or actually, we worshipped your opinion of our image. Our actions re revealed what we believed. But he said things began to change and they realized we are not what we own. We are who owns us. We are loved by God and we are to love each other. Even if the house is a wreck. And as Amy matured in Christ, her priorities started to visibly change. One day, Amy approached Craig and said, Listen, instead of putting so much emphasis on our home, what if we chose to value relationships over our image? And she said, I'd like for our place to be the house. She didn't want the house you know, that looked like a mansion. She didn't want the house that won the Yard, Yard of the Month award. She wanted something else that he said I'd never experienced firsthand. Every neighborhood has the house. You know, the one that all the kids go to? It's the house where everybody spends the most time, creates the most memories, the ones, the, the ones they can't wait to get back to visit. It's the house that's the most fun. You know that house? Did you have one in your neighborhood? It's the house that's always a mess, but it's full of food and love and people and laughter. That's the house Amy said I want. Amy carefully explained to Craig that, that we, she said, we can continue to work hard to have the perfect house, something that's unattainable anyway. Or we could relax our standards and invest more energy in the people we love. So we decided we no longer kill ourselves to impress people with our image, but instead serve people with our love. He said, now if you come over, chances are pretty good you'll have to walk over a bicycle or two on a sidewalk, step over some faded sidewalk chalk, there'll be a Frisbee or something else in the driveway, you'll have to, once you get in the house, step over several toys, and the cushions probably won't be straight on our sofa, 
And you might see a half-finished board game sitting in the dining room table and four stuffed animals sitting in chairs like they're having a tea party in the living room. But I promise that although the house won't be perfect, he said, you will feel welcomed and you will feel loved. We're that house now. He said, when we became more secure with who we were in Christ and didn't need to impress any others with our image but could serve them, he said, we, we changed. And what we changed was not our behavior. We, what we changed was what we believed. Valuing people and loving people over things. Our new beliefs changed how we behaved. And our new belief, with our new beliefs, we found a better way to live. We don't have to live with the constant nausea of materialism. We are feeding on the living water and the bread of life and having the time of our life while we're doing it. My wife has a sticker on our refrigerator, and it says, A spotless house is a life misspent. And she has practiced what she believes. Does your house hold you prisoner? Are you terrified someone might drop in and judge you? Try letting Jesus Christ be Lord and give up your public image. Let your house become a temple of Christ's love. That is life more abundant. That is how you live. You know, in our house, Kim and I have not bought a new stick of furniture in over 30 years. And you can tell. <laughs> Nothing matches in our house. We have blue chairs and green chairs and red chairs. And they're functional. But a long time ago, when we had three boys, I said, we are not going to buy new furniture or good furniture because these boys are going to destroy it anyway. And it won't be because they're bad kids or anything, but between the wrestling and the spilling and the jumping and just being kids, th this furniture is not going to last. We're not going to spend a lot on it. Has, have any of you ever made that decision? So we shopped at the Salvation Army and Habitat for Humanity and some of those other places. And, you know, we'd go in and Kim would go, oh, this is a really good couch for 100 bucks." I go, too expensive. Get the, get the $25 crappy couch. It's not going to last long anyway. In our TV room, for a long time, we had one good couch and one bad couch. The bad one was, you couldn't tell on the surface, but the springs were shot, and when you sat in it, you went down, down. And so when we invited guests over, we had two couches in the TV room. We, Kim and I would rush to the bad couch to get the guests on the good couch so they could at least stay level with the room because we knew where the hole was and here's the whole point we didn't want furniture to determine how stressed or angry we were at our kids all the time how we treated each other was a lot more important than our stuff now, we didn't let them run wild. We didn't let them turn the couches into, into trampolines. At least we tried not to let them do that. There were times when, you know, we had bunk beds and they'd dive headfirst into the other bed, you know, that was a regular bed, and, you know, and I'd beat them and we'd go on. But now our kids are grown and they're out. 
And guess what? We're buying the really good stuff now down at the Salvation Army <laughs> and Habitat for Humanity. We have upgraded. Now you can sit anywhere in our house and not go to the floor. Greshel was right. Following the real God is so freeing. I want to tell you something. Furniture should not determine how you treat your kids. You know? And I'm not talking about letting them turn your furniture into a trampoline or something. But it shouldn't determine how uptight the house is. Can I get an amen? Some of you got kids. You're not going to say amen, are you? No, those kids cannot. <laughs> Let me tell you a parable by G.K. Chesterton. He said a young boy was given a choice. He could be gigantic or he could be minuscule. And like any boy, I could have told you what the choice would be. He chose to be gigantic. His head brushed the clouds. He waded the Atlantic like a pond. He scooped whales into his hand and swished them like tadpoles in the bowl of his palm. He plucked a California redwood and whittled its tip for a toothpick. When he got tired, he stretched across Nebraska and Kansas and slept in the grass. It was magnificent. It was spellbinding. It was exhilarating. And it lasted for about a day. And then the boy got bored. And the gigantic boy in his boredom daydreamed about having made the other choice to be minuscule. Because if he'd been minuscule, his backyard could have become an Amazonian rainforest. His gerbil would hulk larger than any woolly mammoth. He could have ridden on the back of a butterfly on summer days for fun or gone spelunking down wormholes. A tub of ice cream could be a winter playground of magic proportions. Can you imagine being so tiny you can use Ice cream is a ski slope. What fun it would be to fall face first. He said life would have been so much more interesting had he chosen smallness. You don't need to be big in order to have a life more abundant. In fact, Jesus said you need to be small in order to live life more abundant. He said, you must become like a little child in order to live life more abundant. And by small, I don't mean hating yourself or loathing yourself. I mean you just need to trust in the God big enough to give you a life that's worth living. See, we think we need to have more. Jesus says you need to give more. We think you need to be big. Jesus says, if you really want to have fun, be small. Jesus says, you know, we think we, we need to be in control. Jesus says you need to surrender and give up control. What Jesus teaches us is so counterintuitive. I got to watch my father-in-law become small in order to live life more abundant. Kim's father... His name was Lindsay, and I guess he's been dead now for well over 20, 25 years. And um, when I met him, 
Uh, I was serving at the church where he was a deacon. And I was the youth pastor to his daughter. It says, raise up a child in the way she should go. And I did that with Kim. So, <laughs> I'm, oh, please don't repeat that. <laughs> anyway, Lindsay worked for Lowe's, Lowe's Building Supplies. And he worked for them when they were growing exponentially. That's when they were taking off. And Lindsay was a natural leader and an excellent salesman with Lowe's. And so he, while he worked in North Carolina, was promoted to assistant manager and sent to Alabama, to Huntsville, Alabama, where I was serving at a church there. He was sent there to be the assistant manager at the new Lowe's in Huntsville. A few years later, after working there, they asked Lindsay to become the manager of the new store. Lindsay thought about it, and he told them no. He told them no because he knew being a store manager would entail much longer hours, much, much longer hours, 70 to 80 hours a week, time he needed to spend with his family. Because, you see, Lindsay had two teenage sons who were hip-high into drugs, and he felt he must not just throw it into his wife's lap and leave her with this massive drug problem with their own two sons. Lindsay also knew the stress and emotional drain involved in the promotion. There, and there was already enough stress in the family without he, him coming home cranky and stressed and bringing in more stress. Plus, he was a deacon in his church. And he got great joy serving God in his church as a deacon. And so he said no. I will not become the manager of this Lowe's in Huntsville, Alabama. And they said, you better. They said, you know the deal, because Lowe's had a certain plan. If they promoted you to assistant manager, it was the understanding that they were training you to become a manager. And so if you accepted assistant manager, that meant that when they sent the manager that was already there on to start a new Lowe's, you stepped into that man's place. And so they said, you better. And he said, no again. And they said, if you don't, you must step down as assistant manager of this Lowe's. They said, we will demote you and we will cut your salary if you do not take this promotion to run Lowe's. And my father-in-law said, that's fine. He became a mere salesman at Lowe's. And he still enjoyed working there. In fact, my father-in-law was such a good salesman at Lowe's that even without being assistant manager or manager, he made more money than the manager selling. As far as Lindsay was concerned, Lowe's was a wonderful place to work. But you know what else he discovered? Although Lowe's was a wonderful job, Lowe's made a lousy God. There were other things, other priorities in Lindsay's life more important than Lowe's. Lowe's was just a means to an end. He could support his family. He could give to the kingdom. But he was going to make sure it stayed that way. He realized the kind of commitment Lowe's was asking for in terms of time and effort and emotions would supersede every other commitment in his life. 
and he would have nothing of it. Lindsay was saying, in essence, Lowe's what you want me to do costs too much. It costs too much, and you are not worth it. I will work for you, but I will not worship you. You're not big enough. Only the real God deserves the kind of allegiance you demand. And I watched as Lindsay got smaller in order to live a more abundant life. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful example. He would not let Lowe's become a graven image. The scriptures say that people can survive all kinds of physical hardships if they have faith. People of faith have endured prison, hunger, oppressive governments, sickness, loss of good health itself, and they are still triumphant if they still have the real God in their hearts, a real spiritual center. But physical or financial well-being without faith is utterly disastrous, Jesus said. He put it this way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's why God gave these first two commandments. The most basic need of a human is spiritual. You shall not make a graven image or worship an idol. You shall not worship things, money, houses, status, power, politics. Because in the end, you will be left empty or it will kill you. When it comes to gods, only the real God will do. Only the real God will do. A missionary went to Hong Kong. And there he met a young Chinese man one morning who had just escaped communist China. He had been jailed there for his faith. This was like 25, 30 years ago. The young man was a student at one of the universities in China, and he bought into the student revolt that ultimately led to the June 1989 bloody massacre at Tiananmen Square. And this Chinese, student, Chinese young man told the missionary that the student uprising had captured the hearts of students all over China. He said it was the singular focus of their lives. It finally gave their lives meaning. In fact, it was to bring democracy and freedom to China was the only meaning and purpose of their existence. Their dream was to bring about change in the communist Chinese culture. And he said, you know, we know what happened at Tiananmen Square. Hundreds were killed, hundreds of thousands imprisoned, democracy was crushed. And this young man related that after Tiananmen Square, many of his friends committed suicide. Do you know why they committed suicide? Their God had died. There was nothing left to live for. They were stripped of hope. It was that way all across China on every university campus. The young Chinese man said he felt himself the depth of despair and emptiness that the loss of meaning and purpose had brought. What was there left to live for if they could not have democracy and freedom? One of the English teachers he had before, he had before Tiananmen Square was a Christian. And so this student 
who had mocked this teacher and told him he was a fool to believe there was a God. He was a good communist. But now, due to the emptiness of his heart, this Chinese student went back to that teacher and he said, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about God. And this professor told him the reason for the hope that was in his soul. And this young man accepted Christ as his Savior. And then he brought his girlfriend, and she accepted Christ. And they soon after that got married. This young man went on and finished at the university and found himself in a fellowship group of other Christian students. He was assigned to teach at one of the leading universities after that where government officials were trained. And as he taught there, he took the opportunity to share his faith with others. And soon he had formed a house church, a growing and dynamic fellowship of believers around him. And this young Chinese man told the missionary that at these house churches they would throw parties. I love this. They would throw they would throw church parties and in rent hotel rooms and suites. And all the Christians at these hotel rooms and suites would invite their non-Christian friends. And during the party, the Christians would spontaneously get up and tell how Christ had changed their lives at the party. And when others would accept Christ, what they would do is they would lock the doors take the new converts into the shower, fill up the tub, and baptize them on the spot. Now, if it had been me, I would have put them under the shower in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Soon the government officials found out and threw this young professor into prison. And as he unfolded the story of his life and how he came to Christ, he said there's not a university in China that doesn't have a thriving group of Christian students because of what happened at Tiananmen Square when people watched their God die that day. Bewildered, the missionary asked him how that came to be, and he said that as it was in his life, so it was with hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of other students who, having lost all hope at Tiananmen Square, turned their hope to Jesus Christ. What tens of thousands of Chinese students found out is that something even as wonderful as democracy and political freedom is no substitute for the living God. And when that lesser God failed, guess what? The real God moved in. Christ and his love is the only thing in this world that cannot be taken away from you. The only thing. All false gods fail because ultimately they are temporary and they are fragile. Health can be lost. Have you noticed? Freedom taken away. Have you noticed? Money evaporate. Careers abruptly ended. Family killed. Friends abandon you. Democracy become warped. Have you noticed? But no one or no thing can take Christ and his presence and his grace and his love out of your life. Hallelujah. There is nothing fragile about him, nothing temporary about his grace. Anything short of the real God will fail you. And for no other reason 
then it can be taken away. But nothing, Paul declares in Romans, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his presence. Nothing can stop his redemptive purposes in our life. No matter what life throws at us, God will use it to grow us. Hallelujah. And if in the end we lose our lives, then the good times are just starting. Hallelujah. Nothing can stop the real God. Anything you think can save you, even a nation or democracy itself, cannot deliver the goods because only God is God. There is only one true God. That's why he must be first. The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are, and he will save you wherever you are. He is not intimidated by past failures or broken promises or your wounds that keep bleeding. Jesus doesn't care about how screwed up you are. He'll take you right now. And he will save you from your emptiness and your brokenness. But he can only do it if he is Lord. If there is no other God before him. No graven images. If there are no idols that block what he wants to do. He will not force his way in. For his love to work properly and fully, you must have your heart set on what he is giving. There must be nothing you want more than him. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no graven images. You shall have no other things, man-made or not, before him. And that one truth and reality will break all the chains. That one truth will make you not just a conqueror, but more than a conqueror, according to Paul. Because nothing can stop the real God's purposes in or for or through your life. If you don't get these first two commandments right, forget everything else. Just forget everything else. Either there are no other gods, there are no idols, either you are utterly convinced that the source of everything you need is found in Jesus Christ and in his spirit and in his father and in his truth. If you don't believe that, everything else is window dressing and doomed to failure. Is God first? Is he source? Is he Lord? Because Christianity is worthless if that is not true. In your life at least. Everything else is doomed to failure. That is why these two commandments are the first two. I love that Hank started with surrendering. He didn't give you enough time. I'm going to give you some more. (laughs) I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'd like you to finish what God, what idol, what thing made with human hands is really stopping you from tapping in to the real God. 
Lord Jesus, forgive us for not loving you the way you love us. You surrendered everything, life itself, to have us. May we return the favor. Lord, pry our hands off of the things that are false, that we've made security or idols or have built our lives around. Pry our hands off of it so that we may be free and we may have open hands to receive what you want to give to us. Lord, it's hard to take what you're giving if our hands are clutching something else. Help us drop those things and open our hands to you and our hearts to you and our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like the worship team.